All right, let's pray before we get started. Lord, bless us with the knowledge of your word, with the ability to understand it, to apply it. Bless us with a love of it, a love for your word that drives us to read it, to memorize it, to meditate on it, to understand it. Lord, we love your word. It's precious. It sanctifies us. And so help us as we study. In the name of Jesus, amen. Isaiah, I think we were here last time, right? Selective problems, interpretive issues. We're working on Isaiah. I think we stopped on number three. Is that right? We did not do number three last week. Who remembers last week? Seven days ago. Anybody? Did we talk about the child, this one? Virgin born? Okay, we're on this one. All right. Who remembers the uh, theme of Isaiah? What's the theme? Theme of Isaiah? Shout it out. Salvation. And what's the uh, attribute of God that's really brought to the forefront? It's not in your notes. Something to remember. In Isaiah, the attribute of God is holiness. Good. So we've been working our way through some problems. These are not problems with the Bible, problems in our understanding of the Bible and different views. Some of them are really easy for us. Others, sometimes we have to dig a little bit. Sometimes we're just talking about what liberal, progressive Christians believe, people who try to destroy the Bible. Sometimes we're talking about real problems that we have to work on, study, and try to interpret better. So we want to look at Babylon here in chapter 13 of Isaiah. And when is this fall that's described here in Isaiah 13. So go there with me. Isaiah 13, 1. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. So this is Isaiah's prophecy given by God against Babylon. Lift up a standard on the bare hill. Raise your voice to them. Wave the hand that may enter the doors of the nobles. And he goes on just talking about what's going to come upon Babylon. And he goes on in chapter 14 even to have a little bit of a taunt towards Babylon and even the king there of Babylon. So this destruction, this judgment that's going to come upon Babylon, what is it? Because Babylon was destroyed multiple times. Is this a historic Babylon or just a symbol of all human defiance against God? So is this just saying Babylon and its attitude and characteristic is going to be destroyed? It's going to be judged? Or is this saying Assyria? Because remember, if you remember the timeline of Isaiah, Assyria is destroyed in Isaiah's lifetime. Before the book ends, Israel's been destroyed by Assyria. The northern kingdom called Israel has been destroyed by Assyria. And they will soon be destroyed as well, Assyria themselves. But Babylon hasn't even come into the picture. It's interesting that Isaiah is mentioning Babylon. Because Assyria is the world power when Isaiah writes. Babylon's out there. They're growing. Someday they'll take over Assyria. Someday they will come and destroy Jerusalem, take the captives of Israel into captivity. And that's where we get the book of Daniel and further into the Persian reign there. But when Isaiah writes, Assyria is the big power. They've come, they've destroyed the northern people of God, the 10 tribes in the north. All that's left is the two in the south, Judah and Benjamin. So it's called the kingdom of Judah. So it's interesting that he would even mention Babylon. When's this going to happen though? So is this just really Assyria? Now that's, you obviously should say no, because if it says Babylon, then it's Babylon. But let's look at 14, 24, and 25. The Lord of hosts has sworn, Surely just as I have intended, so it has happened. And just as I have planned, it will stand. To break Assyria in my land, and I will trample him on my mountains. Then his yoke will be removed from them, and his burden removed from their shoulder. So someone would look at that right in the middle, or sort of at the end of the judgment on Babylon, and say, look, it's really talking about Assyria. It's not. It's talking about both. First Babylon. And then, of course, the question to people in that day would have been, Okay, that's nice that Babylon will be judged. But what about Assyria? 
And so it's kind of a reminder right here at the very end, very short, the very end of chapter 14. Oh yeah, I'm going to judge Assyria as well. So B is not going to be our choice for Babylon. Whenever it says one word, it's not going to be a different, a different word, a different country, a different meaning. So we're left with the rest of them. The fall of Babylon and 689 BC. So go to chapter 21 here and 1 through 10. God commands that Babylon be taken. The oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea as windstorms in the Negev swept on, it comes from the wilderness, from a terrifying land, harsh vision. And he goes on to basically bring about another judgment upon them. He's going to punish them because they're going to take away his people in the future. Or is this the fall of Babylon in 539? We've been talking a lot about that in our study on Esther. What happened in 539? I gave you a little hint talking about Esther, but who can guess? 539, Babylon is powerful. They rule the world. And... Persia comes in. But the problem there is that Persia didn't destroy Babylon. If you read the judgment in 13 and 14, it's a destruction. The whole city will be destroyed. This is where we get the verses about jackals will go there. It'll be a a haunt of jackals. Nothing there but wild animals. So that didn't really destroy the city. Persia snuck in. They took over. They took charge. The city was left intact. They just destroyed later a couple of temples. Is this E, the fall of Babylon in the future? Something way in the future, as in when Christ comes back, as in what we see in Revelation. And really, I think on your handout, right, F and G is an option under E. Is that right? Who's got Isaiah handouts? Had some up here. Is that right? That's right. Okay, so the slide's wrong here. So, you know, it's going to be in the future, I believe. This is not. 539, it wasn't destroyed. Really, even in, in 689, the city was not destroyed. It's never truly been destroyed. People just left And it sort of withered away in the dust. And then even uh, Saddam Hussein tried to rebuild it in Iraq. It's not been destroyed. And so here's here's the option. I think it's it's blended. It is talking about the takeover and the judgment that's going to happen with the Persians. Daniel speaks of this in his book. But he's really also looking to the future. So it's it's sort of a mixture. We're going to see this a lot in Isaiah as we talk about these problems. He's talking about soon right after him. And he's talking about in the far future as in Christ's return. And those blend together so much, you can't tell. What is he talking about? Is he talking about the return of Christ, the kingdom, the eternal state, new heavens and new earth? Is he talking about the tribulation? What is he talking about? Yes. What is the future Babylon? We don't know. We don't know. Yeah. It's debated whether it's uh, the kind of the idea of Babylon, a great city that rules the world and is all about idolatry, or if it's that in the literal spot that Babylon is today. We'll save that for our study on Revelation. But for now, we have to say that what's being described in Isaiah 13 and 14 doesn't fit exactly what's happened to Babylon in the past. And so liberals will look at this and say, see, there's the Bible again. said Babylon would be completely destroyed. Nothing would be there. And uh, it's never been that way. Well, that's because some of these are yet to come. But it wasn't destroyed in the way that that those passages describe. Um, Trying to find a specific verse that might show us that. 13.6, well, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as a destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp. Every man's heart will melt. They will be terrified. Pains and anguish take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment. Their faces aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. So that, that key phrase, day of the Lord, when you see that in the prophets, that's referring to the Lord's judgment upon the whole earth. Uh, return of Christ in the New Testament what we often think of as the tribulation period, the time when the earth will be judged as a whole, the day of the Lord. So it's back and forth. The stars of the heavens and their constellations will not flash forth light. 
sun will be dark when it rises. The moon will not shed its light. Verse 10. So some things are yet to come. Good question though. Okay, the king of Babylon. Who is this guy? Chapter 14. So we talked about Babylon. Let's get into it. It's ruler at the time. Isaiah's prophesying. He says in this prophecy in chapter 14, verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning. Son of the dawn, you have been cut down to the earth. You who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of assembly. And the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. How do most people interpret that in church history? What does that sound like? Sounds like Satan. So that's that's C. That's an option. Or just the human king. Because the problem with saying that it's Satan is the context all around it is a real physical Babylon, a real city, a real place, a real evil empire that's going to harm God's people, both now and, and in the future if you look at the book of Revelation, now as in Isaiah's day and his following generation. Also, some would say, look, this is the human king, but behind that human king is, of course, Satan. Satan's ruling over the world, and he rules over these kings, especially the king of Babylon, who would have been almost worshipped as a god at the time. And that's possible, uh, since all evil human kings are directed by Satan. You know, it's interesting, if you look at verse 12, O star of the morning. You know what that is? Star of the morning. It's where the Latin term Lucifer comes from. So, it gets translated into, into Latin Lucifer, and I think the King James left it as a name for Satan. And then everyone sort of thinks that's Satan's name, Lucifer. And then when translations like the NASB go back to the original here, they say that it's playing games with people. You know, the King James only folks will say, look, these new translations, they changed the name of Satan. And they call him Star of the Morning, which is also a name in the New Testament for Jesus. So the King James only folks say, look, these new translations are satanic. They're actually calling Satan the name of Jesus. What is the star of the morning? Probably the planet Venus, the morning star, the star that you would see in the east before the sun came up. And this was the idea of someone coming forth shining brightly. So it just means a bright shining one. The king of Babylon thought he was like the morning star, like he was the sun, like he made all things and should be worshipped. Satan thinks that, and of course we know that Christ is that. So Lucifer is really not a name for Satan in the Bible. It's a Latin translation of the description of the morning star. So I think the NASB has it right. O star of the morning, son of the dawn. I used to think this was Satan. I'm, I'm leaning more towards the human king here. There's a passage in Ezekiel later we'll get to that I think does describe Satan and a type of judgment. I think it's the king of Tyre and that one. But I wouldn't be opposed to somebody who said this is B. The context is a human king. But if you're saying they sort of left that idea here in the description and even directing some prophecy at Satan, that's not outside the bounds. I just think the human king thinks he is as mighty as God. He thinks he is as powerful as God. The whole city does and they're going to be judged, Isaiah says. Yeah, Satan's definitely at play here. Yeah, but I think the prophecy itself is directed at the ruler of the city. But B would be acceptable. I mean, even C. I don't think he's switching from real actual Babylon to suddenly just talking to Satan to then going back to actual Babylon. So it's A or B. Okay, who's the identity of the servant? So Jews today will say, look, this is this servant person mentioned in the later section, verses uh, chapters 40 on. This is Israel. 
There's no Messiah here. Of course, we know differently. So is this the nation Israel? Let's look at some examples. Let's just go to 41.8. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend. So who's Israel there? He says, right, Jacob. Jacob is the nation. He's not talking about the Messiah. He's talking about the nation Israel. Verse 9, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest part and said to you, you are my servant, little s in our Bibles here. Go to 42.19. Who is blind but my servant? Or so deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is so blind as he that is at peace with me? Or so blind as a servant of the Lord? So he's speaking disparagingly. He's not talking about the Messiah here. He's talking about Israel. They're blind. They're deaf. God has loved them and they're not paying attention. So A is an option. Uh, B, the righteous remnant of Israel. Those who will be serving the Lord rightly because they're truly saved, they're truly His people, whereas the whole nation did not always believe. Or see an individual, an individual. Let's look at 42.1. Behold, my servant, capital S in my Bible. Of course, the originals didn't have capital, so you have to interpret this. The translators interpret this as servant, capital S, the Messiah, whom I uphold. My chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He'll bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Who's that? That's the Messiah. How do we know? How can we prove that? Where do we go to prove that that actual passage is clearly a reference to Jesus? Going to Matthew, Matthew 12. Jesus quotes this. Or is it Matthew quoting it in reference to Jesus? I don't recall, but it's there in reference to Jesus. And so the translators say, obviously, God's word is inspired both old and new. That's talking about the coming Messiah. But there's an individual in 20 verse 3 that sounds like it's Isaiah the prophet is the servant. So he says, And the Lord said, Even as my servant Isaiah has gone naked and barefoot three years as a sign and a token against Egypt. So who's the servant there? Isaiah, this is important because there's some debate, obviously, amongst Christians about Israel, Israel today, Israel in the Old Testament. Who is Israel? Will Israel last? And Israel is whatever the context says it is. So sometimes it's a nation, Israel, and sometimes it's an individual. Most often the coming Messiah that one time is Isaiah himself. The word servant is just a word. It's how it's used in context that matters. So we've got to study. If somebody tells you, you know what? Israel, every time in Isaiah, speaks of the Messiah. But you're going to remember, no, it's not. Sometimes it's the nation. At one time, it's Isaiah. So we can't always give these, these, idea, these uh, sayings always in a huge book like Isaiah. It can be different, which is a lesson in read carefully, understand your context. Context, context, context. All right, is this the last one? Number six on your handout? Is this the last interpretive issue? Yeah. All right, good. We get to move to Jeremiah today then. The new heavens and the new earth. Now there's some debate about this amongst good and and godly Christians. And you've probably always heard the new heavens and new earth and just thought of that as the eternal state. When Christ comes back and eventually all the world is remade, everything is perfect. And why do we think that? Why do we think of the new heavens and the new earth as B often, the eternal state? What would make us think that in the New Testament? The book of Revelation Anybody read Revelation around here? Just me. What happens in Revelation? He says, at the end, it is a 
new heavens and a new earth. He's referring back to these words that Isaiah uses. And clearly at the end of Revelation, it is the eternal state. You know what I'm talking about, eternal state? All things made new, all things perfect. Not the kingdom. There's a kingdom, a millennial reign, a thousand years, and then the eternal state. Eternal state is new heavens, new earth. We don't get a lot of information about it other than the description of Jerusalem. Often when we talk about heaven, if we're thinking forward, we're talking about the eternal state. Let's look at 65:17 though. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem, be glad in my people. There will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping, the sound of crying. Sounds good. Sounds like the eternal state. Look at verse 20. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. You don't typically think of infants or babies being born in the eternal state. Is there still marriage? Is there still this procreation act going on? That some, some people believe that. I guess a few out there. But for the most part, the Bible teaches that that won't happen in the eternal state. Or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100. And the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. There's going to be death in the eternal state? No, that definitely doesn't fit. They will build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. So if we take it literally, there's birth going on. There's some death going on. Go to sixty-six twenty-two now. For just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, will endure before me. So your offspring and your name will endure. And it shall be from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all mankind will come to bow down before me, says the Lord. Then they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm will not die, and their fire will not be quenched, and they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. What's that a reference in the New Testament? Worm will not die, fire will not be quenched. Gehenna, hell, eternal hell eternal punishment. So which is it? Is it the kingdom? Because some of this language would fit better in the kingdom. Babies who are born and have a long life and they're accursed if they die early. Not in the eternal state. Possible maybe in the kingdom. We don't get a lot of information of how the kingdom will work. But he says it's new. So it can't be the current world that we're in right now. It's something new. I create new heavens and a new earth. We can't just write it off to allegory. We've got to do our best to interpret it literally, historically. And remember, this is a promise in Isaiah of the future, things to come. There's talk about homes, an old man who does not live out his days. So we can't say it's all kingdom. There are some things that don't indicate that it's all the eternal state. The all millennial, uh, the person who believes that there's not really a millennial kingdom, but we're in it right now, would say it's the church age. And a little of the eternal state mixed in. D's kind of like that. The church A's, temporal kingdom, eternal state. I'm going with E. It's kingdom and eternal state blended together. There's some distinctions. One verse applies to this. One verse applies to that. But what's Isaiah doing? Mixing it. It's a prophecy. It's not something that Isaiah probably even fully understands. He's just writing. He, I think he understands what he sees. But he doesn't understand the timing of it all. We get that in the New Testament. We get that with further revelation. So it's sort of like this. Which of those mountains in the background are closer? 
Can you tell that? Y'all got a lot of mountains in Kansas, right, Jesse? Can you tell which one's closer? Which one? This is a prophecy as Isaiah. As the prophets received it from God, they're just told what's going to happen. And I don't think they were completely confused. They didn't know what they were talking about. There's 500 meanings in what they say. No, that's not the way we should think about it. But they reported accurately the picture given to them. But this was it. There's some things in the foreground, some trees and some hills. We know that's coming soon. If I'm traveling to those mountains, those hills leading up to the mountains are coming soon. We can kind of see a brown ridge in the background there. That would, that would happen before the snow-capped peaks. But we can't really tell which of the snow-capped peaks are coming first. How about that one? You can kind of see some things. What about in the background there, Forrest? Which one of those on the horizon is closest to us? Can't tell. You can tell some things in the foreground, right? They're coming soon. Assyria will be judged. Moab will be judged. New heavens and new earth. Kingdom or eternal state in the background. We can make arguments either way, but this is how the prophets saw and wrote. So it's called prophetic telescoping. This is very important because if you don't understand this, then you can really get confused. People can come and convince you whichever way they want. So Isaiah just sees the mountaintops. He writes about them. Now we can see with the New Testament. We can turn that around and see from the side. Something's happened right away in Isaiah's life. Something's happened just after his life, the next generation, two generations later. Something's happened when the Messiah came, seven, eight hundred years later. Some things happened after the Messiah came, but they're still in the future. So they're after the Messiah, he says, new heavens and new earth. But we know today they haven't happened yet. We're 2,000 years the other side of the cross. Far, far fulfillment. New heavens, new earth. So this is another one here, if you can see this. Straight on, you see two circles, right? Which one's first? Which one comes sooner? Oh, you turn them to the side, you got a near one and a far one. The smaller one's closer. You couldn't have seen that until you turned them to the side. He didn't get the side picture. That comes later. So here's kind of a, an example of that. Isaiah, he sees his own time first in the foreground. He sees that Israel's going to go into exile. He, he writes about that. He writes that they'll be restored. He talks about the coming Messiah, the first coming. He talks about the tribulation. He talks about the second coming, the millennial kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth. We can now see this from the side. He didn't see this. He just wrote the front picture. God only gave him the big picture. He only showed him where they were headed, which is enough back then. You're in captivity and you're reading the book of Isaiah. Well, that's great. There's a Messiah coming. We're going to be restored. There's going to be all of these great things happening. But it didn't happen in their lifetime. It happened later. Now, some of it did. Some of it happened. They were restored in a sense when they went back, but not the full restoration. Let's talk about Jeremiah. Any other questions on Isaiah? You guys got it down? Lifespan of Isaiah's day? Not more than probably mid-60s. I mean, occasionally you would have people living older, but the average man probably only lived into his mid-40s because of infant death is going to bring it down quite a bit. Yeah, I don't have those notes in front of me, but just looking at the verse, an infant in, in our world today can live but a few days. That's common, especially back then, right? And he's saying that's not going to happen anymore. And an old man who doesn't live out his days is not going to happen anymore. Old men are going to live a really long time for the youth will die at the age of 100. That would be like infants dying today. 100 would be the minimum. And then, of course, it's a thousand years. So a thousand would be the max. And if you think about it, it's very interesting to sort of think back to Genesis and how long did those people live before the flood? Close, close to a thousand years. So there could be some restoration to those things, but there's still death. 
Um, not for those who have a resurrected body, though. But that kind of gets into who gets in that doesn't have a resurrected body, and that'll take us more into eschatology. But I think there are some at the end of Zechariah who walk right into the kingdom of the nation of Israel that are saved right when Christ returns. So yes, there's a lot that has to go into that. Uh, a lot of eschatology that we are picking up elsewhere and putting it all together. It's like the mountaintop, right? You can see them in the picture, but you got to turn them on the side and now start saying, okay, where does Revelation fit? Where does Zechariah fit? Where does Ezekiel stuff fit? Which you'll come to. So I don't know if we should take the hundred as an exact number or if it's just saying, look, even the person who dies will be considered old compared to our day. And we know there's going to be death at the end of the millennial reign because uh, Satan gets an army and attacks one more time and Christ wipes them out. And I think that's the bodies at the end of Isaiah that continue to burn forever and ever. Not even sure where those bodies will be. Are those going to be somewhere upon the earth? Are they sort of cast into another dimension? Is there a pit on the opposite side where these things are happening? Don't have time to go into the deeper study of that. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. Why is he called the weeping prophet? Isaiah had some success, but he ends up being sawed in half. Jeremiah didn't have much success in his immediate ministry. He succeeded in getting the word of God out. But what do they do to Jeremiah? They throw him in jail. They throw him in the pit. They throw him in a cistern. They beat him up. They knock him around. And he's just always crying out, Jerusalem will be destroyed. Jerusalem will be destroyed. And so he's giving the bad news that they don't want to hear. And in fact, preachers of our early American days who were saying, look, don't, don't make this a country of sin. Don't make this a place where people fall into immorality. And as America has gone on into that, many have mocked and said these preachers who are hellfire and brimstone, talking about judgment on America and hell in the future, they're like Jeremiah. And the sermons became Jeremiads. Jeremiah's being a sermon of judgment and of woe. And so people didn't, even two, three hundred years ago, didn't want to hear about the judgment. Didn't want to hear about Jeremiah. And many people today don't want to read Jeremiah because if Isaiah had a lot of judgment, at least the last 26 chapters were restoration. Uh, Jeremiah is full of judgment. You get to see it played out in real time and actually see some of the effects afterwards as well. The title's always been Jeremiah. Hebrew is uh, Yeremiah. The J's are really the Y sound in Hebrew. But because of German, we turn those Yods into J's. So we get Jehovah instead of Yahweh. The same with Joshua, Jeremiah. The author is Jeremiah. We see that multiple times. But also he has a scribe named Baruch. Baruch is the one who has been taking notes as Jeremiah speaks. And so it's by Jeremiah, but through this guy, Baruch. It's not two different people that are writing Jeremiah. Jeremiah is the prophet. Baruch has the nice handwriting, I guess. Uh, we can see that. In, let's just go to Jeremiah 36.1. We see this especially when the writings of Jeremiah get destroyed and they have to be rewritten. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Take a scroll and write on it all the words which I have spoken to you concerning Israel, concerning Judah, concerning the nations, from the day I first spoke to you, from the days of Josiah, even to this day. Perhaps the house of Judah will hear all the calamity which I plan to bring on them, in order that every man will turn from his evil way. Then I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. Then Jeremiah called Baruch the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote on a scroll at the dictation of Jeremiah, all the words 
of the Lord, which he had spoken to him. This happens again later, chapter 45, 45, 1 through 5. This is the message which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to Baruch, the son of Neriah, when he had written down these words in a book at Jeremiah's dictation. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, saying, and he just pretty much repeats what we already saw there. So Baruch's the scribe, Jeremiah is the actual prophet, hearing from God directly. The date of events go from 627 B.C. to 586, for the most part. What happened in 586? Big year. Jerusalem gets destroyed. The temple gets destroyed. Remember, if you have to remember just a couple of key dates, 586 is a big one. The temple gets destroyed. The city gets destroyed. All that's been coming in Jeremiah, all that he's been prophesying, comes to its conclusion there at the end of the first major section, 44. At the end of chapter 44, the city is destroyed. But we have more of the book left. And that happens many years after the city is destroyed. And this is when Jeremiah gets taken down to Egypt. That's in 561. Remember, we're counting down when it's B.C. So go to 5231. So there's a gap. There's a bit of a skip ahead here to record what happens after the fact. So 52, verse 31. That came about in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month. So if you were to date the previous part of the book, it occurs much earlier. And now we can date this last little part. On the 25th of the month, that evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the first year of his reign, showed favor to Jehoiachin, king of Judah, and brought him out of prison. So this is long after... They've been taken into captivity. The city's been destroyed. And the king that's left, the king that's in captivity, the one that got his eyes poked out, is brought out of prison in Babylon. And he's at least showed favor by the king of Babylon at the time. He spoke kindly to him, set his throne above the thrones of the kings who were with him. So Babylon would go out. They would conquer kingdoms, bring back the king, put him on display in the city, look at our captives, kind of the the zoo of all the kings that they had captured And Jehoiachin's brought out and he can see daylight now. He can have good food. And he's above all the others, at least in the show that's being put on there. Then he spoke kindly to him, put his throne above the other king. So Jehoiachin changed his prison clothes, had his meals in the king's presence regularly all the days of his life. For this allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king of Babylon, a daily portion all the days of his life until the day of his death. So we can date that to about 561 BC. The last little part here. But most of the book is 627 to 586, building up to the destruction of Jerusalem. So the focus then is on Jerusalem. 107 times the word is mentioned. Babylon is going to do the destruction of Jerusalem and does actually accomplish that in the book. So we have Babylon mentioned 118 times. Judah, the southern kingdom, Judah, 183 times. And even the northern kingdom called Israel is mentioned quite a bit, 125 times. Often God is saying, remember what happened? You remember what happened with the Assyrians when they came and took over the northern kingdom, Israel? That's going to happen to you, Judah. You need to repent. You need to repent. Jeremiah's mentioned a couple of other places. Daniel 9.2. I'm going to save my voice and have some of you guys read that. Autumn, Daniel 9.2. Forest, do that Second Chronicles 35. Carl, can you do Ezra 1.1? And who wants to do the 36? Let's see. Second Chronicles, Frank. 2 Chronicles 36, 12, 21, 22. A lot of numbers there. Just look at your hand out, Frank. 
So Jeremiah is mentioned many other places. Why? Well, it's, it's key because Jeremiah is the one who gives the 70-year number that Judah, the Jews, will be taken into captivity for 70 years. Daniel 9.2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years, which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So how'd they know it was going to be 70 years? Well, Daniel figures it out by reading Jeremiah. It says 70 years. And Daniel says, hey, time's up. It's time to go back. Let him go back, Cyrus. It's kind of the idea there. Second Chronicles 35, 25. Then Jeremiah chanted a lament for Josiah, and all the male and female singers speak about Josiah and their lamentations to this day. And they made them an ordinance in Israel. Behold, they are also written in the lamentations. So Jeremiah and Lamentations are kind of grouped together there. It's end of Second Chronicles. We'll come to Lamentations after this book. But that's why we know Jeremiah wrote Lamentations. Yeah, let's do the rest of Second Chronicles first, Frank. Verse 12. He did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke to the Lord. Verse 21 and 22. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation he kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. So Jeremiah said 70 years. We just assume it's all over the Old Testament. Everybody knew that. It doesn't sound like that. It sounds like you had to go to Jeremiah because that's the only place that specifies it. And these later books are just recording the fact that it's time to go back. And Cyrus... God's working in his heart as well to let them go back. Ezra 1 1. Carl? First year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made, made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. So he's letting the Jews go back. Cyrus, the king of Persia, the one who takes over Babylon, is going to let them go back. So God's working to stir up his heart. That's God's providence. But it's also in his word, the book of Jeremiah, that it would be exactly 70 years. And so both working sovereignly behind the scenes, God is providentially, and it's also in his word. Those two things come together, Ezra says, in that year that they go back. Talk about amazing prophecy and how the Bible works. We're actually seeing people in the Old Testament looking back to previous books of the Old Testament to get informed about things. What's the theme? Warning, warning, warning. Repent, repent, repent. It's the last hour. So you can either say warning or last hour, repentance or confrontation. This is why people don't always enjoy the book of Jeremiah. Probably why you've never heard a sermon through the whole book. It's kind of like the book of Judges. Judgment, warning, judgment, warning, judgment, warning. Repent, repent now. It can build on you as you're reading it. Try to read it in one day. Let's open that up into a purpose. Why is it in our Bible? Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians. Because of Judah's breaking of the Mosaic Covenant. So this book really opens up the reason why the Babylonians will destroy and do destroy Judah and God's holy city, Jerusalem. Uh, How did they break the Mosaic Covenant? Especially spiritual adultery. They worshipped other idols. They worshipped other gods. Not other idols. Other gods through idolatry. Nevertheless, Yahweh's rule. That's the covenant name of God. Yahweh's rule is assured through the new and Abrahamic and priestly and Davidic. But we're just going to talk mostly about the new, the new covenant. So they broke the old. 
They're punished. But there's a new one. Before the book of Jeremiah ends, he's going to talk about a new covenant. So I think that's why it's, this is taken really from some of my notes from seminary. I think this is a good purpose of why is it here? To tell them, first of all, Israel, why it happened and then the promise of the future. But you see throughout the book of Jeremiah that it's happening in real time. So he's warning them and warning them and they're not listening. They're throwing him in jail. That's why Jesus said, you stone the prophets. You refuse. You're stubborn. You're stiff-necked. They denied Jesus as the true Messiah. They denied all of God's prophet as the true mouthpiece of God. They just are stubborn people like we are. And so why is it here for Christians? Paul says in 1 Corinthians, so that we might learn. So that we might learn not to be like that. We might have an example of stubbornness. Why has it been neglected by, by the modern church? Why haven't you done a Bible study or heard preaching on it? Well, we haven't been here long enough. I don't know how long it would take to preach Jeremiah. Frank's probably going to do it someday, right Frank? It's the longest book in the latter prophets. So here's some things to consider when you do preach through Jeremiah, Frank. It's the longest book in the latter prophets. The structure is difficult to determine. So it's kind of hard to put it in some kind of organized structure. You probably don't think of structure when you read the book. But if you teach a book or preach a book, then structure becomes more important. And here's the main reason. The message is predominantly doom and gloom. And of course, last century and this century is all about optimism and positive thinking. So who wants to spend the two, three years in this book when it's doom and gloom? And even the most sanctified holy among us would probably get a little weary of judgment, judgment, judgment every week. Now, a good preacher, of course, would include gospel at the end of that and say, look, we have more than just Jeremiah, right? We've got the New Testament. But even the church, the modern church is a church of positive thinking. You can do it. You can do it. Life is great. Abundant life. Prosperity gospel is so popular because that's what people love. And so books like Judges, Jeremiah, even Isaiah, most of the Old Testament doesn't even get taught or preached. Someday we'll get to it, Lord willing, in some fashion. It's not always that Sunday morning is going to be the time to bring out all the Old Testament books. Occasionally it will be, but through Bible studies and other methods. And even right now we're covering it in a sense. So here's why it's the longest. You've seen this before in the, in the Hebrew Bible. These are the four main sections of the prophets. Remember Daniel is considered a writing and the group of writings, not prophets. The latter prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the twelve. Twelve is what? Minor prophets. What's the biggest one? Jeremiah, 21,000 words. But I thought Isaiah had more chapters. Jeremiah has 52. Isaiah has 66. Isn't Isaiah longer? Not when you count the words. The, the chapters can throw you off. Remember, those come later. Somebody sits down, they start dividing this into chapters so we can find out how to get there and reference it in sermons and study Bibles and stuff. But the words themselves, it's quite a bit longer. Longer than any of the others. So a basic outline, and I'll give you a couple here. Chapter 1 is about Jeremiah's call. Then 2 through 45, the section that's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, really, in judgment, is all grouped together. Judah's prophecies. Prophecies against Judah, the southern kingdom, mostly centered around Jerusalem. So 2 through 25, we get condemnation of Judah. 26 through 29, conflicts of Jeremiah. So he goes out and proclaims this message, and now they're going to persecute him. And then briefly, only three chapters, he talks about a restoration. Whereas Isaiah has the latter third of his book, maybe 40% of his book is about restoration. Here it's only just three or four chapters in Jeremiah. Then the collapse of Jerusalem actually comes. 
So we, we get to see it. There's a lot of talk about Jerusalem and Isaiah, about what's going to happen to God's people. But Jeremiah describes it happening. And then 40, 60, 51, the Gentiles don't get away. Just because God destroyed Jerusalem doesn't mean he's forgotten about Gentile punishment. They're going to be punished as well. And then we see some after effects of Jerusalem's fall in 52. So here's a nice outline for your one sermon, Frank. You can preach the whole book. Some preachers do this. Jeremiah's call, Judah's gall, and Jerusalem's fall. Look at that. Even it kind of rhymes, you know. One sermon, all 52 chapters right there. Who's going to do that? Not me. I might spend like five years in Jeremiah. Okay, well, any questions on that? Let's look in the last few minutes we have on Jeremiah's call here. Chapter 1. The words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, of the priest who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin. So he's from a line of priests. He's born in the southern kingdom, the land of Judah. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. To whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah. So that dates the king he's serving under. He talks about who Josiah is. He's the king of Judah. In the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim and the son of Josiah. So the next king. Until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Until the exile of Jerusalem in the fifth month. So he's serving under the term of about three kings here. The last one's cut short because they're going into exile under Zedekiah. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. So God is not just saying he created Jeremiah. That's true of everyone. But he's talking here about predestination to being a prophet. We talk about predestination to salvation. And that's certainly true. But here God's saying, I chose you when you were even in the womb to be my prophet. Reminds us of who in the New Testament? In the womb gives a big kick. Sort of the first sign. John the Baptist, right? He's in the womb. He gives a kick towards Mary who's, who has Jesus in her as well. So another passage that tells us life begins, of course, before the baby comes out. It's just really silly that people try to say life doesn't begin in the womb. It begins at conception, of course. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am a youth, because everywhere I send you, you shall go, and all that I command you, you shall speak. Jeremiah is really young. Isaiah was young too. Jeremiah is really young. He's probably in his young teenage years, 14, 15. I guess he could be up to 20, but he's so young that he says, I'm too young. And he's got to be young enough to live through these king's reigns as well. God says, don't even give me that excuse. I already chose you when you were in the womb. You have no say in it. You're going to be my prophet. And don't be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord stretched out his hand, touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I put my words in your mouth. See, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. And then he starts his prophecies and the next verse. So he's called. God didn't come and say, you know, you want to choose me today, Jeremiah? It's up to you. It's your free will. Now, of course, Jeremiah wanted to please God. He's a believer, we would say. He's a follower of God. But I don't think Jeremiah grew up knowing he was going to be a prophet. God just speaks to him one day and says, I chose you. You're my prophet. Go. Sort of like Isaiah. He walks into the temple one day, sees this great vision of God. He wasn't growing up thinking, I'm going to be a prophet someday. So they can kill me, beat me, not listen to me. 
And even in the temple, the vision of Isaiah, I remember God says, who will go for me? Who's going to go and tell these stubborn people something they won't hear? And I'll make sure they don't hear you, but you go preach to them. And Isaiah says, me, who would volunteer for that? Only somebody who's seen the, the glory of God on display. Whatever you say, God, I'll do it. And it's sort of like that here with Jeremiah. Uh, let's go to two now. Now the word of the Lord came, chapter two, to me saying, go and proclaim in the ears of Jerusalem. So this is really the next 44 43 chapters, go and proclaim in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, thus says the Lord. And now he goes into the coming destruction, the warning, all that will happen. Just turn your pages there and look at your headings of your chapters there if you have them. Chapter 4, Judah's threatened with invasion, lament over Judah's devastation, hasn't even happened yet. There's a lament over it. Chapter 5, Jerusalem's godlessness, judgment proclaimed. Chapter 6, destruction of Jerusalem is impending. Flee for safety, O sons of Benjamin, from the midst of Jerusalem. Now, what were the people thinking when they heard Jeremiah? What were they thinking? It's not going to happen. You can see some of this in 2 Kings. It's not going to happen. Even the book of Jeremiah, they say, we don't believe you. Stop, stop prophesying bad news. This is God's holy city. He's never going to destroy it. They trusted in that. They trusted that God wouldn't destroy Jerusalem. So they did whatever they wanted. Or at least the leaders did. And many of the people followed as well. Stop saying that. Give us a prophet who will tell us some good news. And they would find somebody. Give us a prophet who will tell us what we want to hear. Tickle our ears. Jeremiah, you're going to get thrown in the pit. Get out of here, Jeremiah. So he keeps on. Eight, the sin and treachery of Judah. God's making his case here. No one can look back and say, you know, Jerusalem, they were just so innocent. They were just so good. How could God do that? What kind of God would destroy good people like that? No, they were wicked. They were deceitful. They were idolatrous. It's the same thing that's going to happen to the world in the end. But here we see a picture of it in the Old Testament. There's even a satire, chapter 10. And 11 we'll come to later. It's the broken covenant. Why is all of this happening? Because they broke the covenant. They broke it. The Mosaic Covenant was a covenant that was not meant to be everlasting. It was never called everlasting. It was a covenant they agreed to. It was a covenant that had sacrifices. And they agreed to it. They said, we'll do it in Exodus. We'll follow your law. And God said, if you do, blessing. If you don't, what? Curses. All God's doing in Jeremiah is bringing to fulfillment what he had promised to do if they broke the covenant. So we'll stop there and uh, pick up Next week with Jeremiah, save your handout, bring it back so you can take notes if you want. We'll have a few extras if you forget, but hopefully not everyone's going to forget. If you have questions about Isaiah or Jeremiah, come see me. I'll be up here for a few minutes. It would be good for you to be reading some of this. Speed read. I don't normally say speed, speed read your Bible, but for a survey class, speed reading would be good. So finish Isaiah if you're still in that and get into Jeremiah. Then you can go back later in your yearly Bible reading and go through it more slowly. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time of study. Let us now turn to you as we worship you in song and and in prayer and in the word, Lord. Your word is good to us. It refreshes us. It kindles a fire for you, a desire for you. And we're just so grateful that we can look back and see these hard lessons in the Old Testament and learn from them. Help us not to be stubborn, stiff-necked people, but to be pleasing and malleable to your will. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior. Amen.